Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good morning. I am glad to see each and every one of you. Let's talk. I want to share a few things with you. First off, I told the men's group Tuesday night that what we believe here at GCA is true. And I'm glad that it's true. Because in real life circumstances, it proves itself. For instance... Before I had a stroke, five and a half weeks ago, I convinced everybody here and would tell anybody that listened and and told everyone everywhere, I said, our God is sovereign. He's in charge. Our God also elects people. Our God chooses people, and our God is good. And, uh, of course, people have argued with me about that over the years. They say, well, is God in charge of absolutely every little thing? Don't I have some choice in the matter? And I have argued that God is sovereignly in charge. Now, having said that, I would also like to point out that I'm stupid. (laughs) The reason that I had a stroke five and a half weeks ago is because I'm stupid. I had all the signs, I had all the warnings, I had all the headaches, I had all, I had everything that would warn a a person who was paying attention that they had high blood pressure. I used to go to Kroger's and Publix and places like that, and I would see the machine where you check your high blood pressure, and I would walk by the machine because I knew what it was going to tell me. Even my doctor's office, when they would do the blood pressure, they'd say, you know, it's, it's high. It's a little high. I'd say, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. And then the high blood pressure caught up with me because, well, that's what happens to people. That's what happens to human beings. If you ignore obvious signs, well, then something bad's going to happen. I was home with Renee, so the story goes. And I was uh, working at Renee's computer. She had brought it over so I could work at her computer. And suddenly my right hand just started typing words that don't exist anywhere in the English language. Oh, that's what's wrong with my computer. Yes, that's what's wrong with your computer. <laughs> and, uh, and I told Renee, you know, go ahead and go. This is how it works. This is how the downloads work. Go ahead and leave. And she left. And then uh, I talked to my son, and he was very concerned about me because suddenly my right leg did not work. And I fell down on the bed, and I fell into a speaker in the living room, and, you know, things like that. And yet I continued in my stupidity to tell people, I'm fine. Sure, my hand doesn't work. Sure, my right leg has quit. I'm fine. I thought I just needed to sleep it off. And so my daughter came home, 
and she found me laying on the bed, and she believed me because I'm always the boss of my house. She believed me when I said, I'm fine. I just need to lay down. I'm sick. I called Micah, and I called Tom, and I said, I'm not going to be there tonight. I'm just sick, only to find out later that Micah said that I sounded like I was drunk, like that was my problem. I was reassuring everyone, I'm fine. And then, of course, the ambulance came. My daughter called 911. They hauled me off to the hospital. Now, the reason that I recount this to you is because before that happened, I knew that God was sovereign. And that's an important thing to remember. Because if indeed it were up to me to maintain my faith, if it were up to me to pray enough, if it were up to me to have a firm and a solid grasp on all my theology, all of those things went out the window. I was laying in the hospital incapable of doing anything. I wasn't thinking right. I wasn't clear in my head. People came and prayed over me, but... I was just lost as could be. And if God was waiting for me to figure that out, if God was waiting for me to figure out how to do something, if God was waiting for me to exercise faith, if God was waiting for me to pray adequately, if God was waiting for me to get my mind right, then I lost my salvation in the hospital. But because he's in charge, and because he sent his son, and because salvation is a result of his son's work, and because his son adequately saves whoever he wants under any conditions, I wasn't afraid. Now, if I were your average Arminian, I would have been terribly afraid. Because, oh no, I can't do anything. I can't think right. I can't move. I can't do anything. And these people who came to see me in the hospital, I'm very thankful that they came and prayed over me to a sovereign God. If they had prayed to some God who was waiting for me to do something and then turned to me and said, Jim, do something, I'd have had to say, uh, I can't. I couldn't even say I can't. Just lost. But before the tragedy happened, I was very aware that God had me. And so I had the time to lay there in my hospital bed and get well because God had me. And, and I'm just very, very grateful that I knew that theology before this all occurred because there's actually comfort in knowing that God's got this. Now, a minute ago, I told you how stupid I am. I ignored all the signs. I ignored all the high blood pressure. I ignored all the stuff that happened. And then I, I had the, the stroke. My speech therapist said to me on Monday, I've been doing this for 12 years, and I've never seen anybody make the recovery that you've made. And I said, well, that's God. For some reason, he decided he's not done with me yet. 
For some reason, he decided to lift me up yet again, bring me back to health. My hand is working. My right leg is working again. And then about two weeks ago, the cloud lifted. The cloud in my brain that rendered me incapable of doing anything lifted. And I could think, and I could do stuff, and I could determine that I would do it, and I'm doing my exercises, and I'm doing fine, and this Tuesday my nurse will come and reassess me to decide whether I'm homebound anymore, because I'm really bored of being homebound. <laughs> and all of that is to God's glory. That's what I'm telling you. He could have left me in that condition. He could have left me in that state. I could still be laying in a bed. My mother is. My mother had a massive stroke. She's been in an old folks home, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a nursing home ever since. Her entire left side is paralyzed permanently, and God could have left me in that state five and a half weeks ago. But he didn't. And now I'm thankful for every little thing. I've never given any thought my whole life. I've never given any thought to like the balance it takes to walk. Never thought about it. I came home from the hospital on a walker. And I got off the walker and I was on a cane for a while. Look at me now. Five and a half weeks later, I'm off the cane. And walking around. I'm thankful for everything my right hand does. My right hand grabs stuff, lifts stuff. I've never given it any thought before. It was always just there. It always just worked. But now that it didn't work and has come back, oh, I'm so thankful. When it learns to play piano again, I'll be really thankful. <laughs> And when it learns to type without making up words with these two fingers, I'll be really thankful. But the fact that it wasn't doing anything, and now it's doing everything I'm asking it to, is remarkable. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I believe that. I could have laid there in the hospital shaking my fist at God. But because I know he's sovereign, I laid in the hospital and said, whatever you do, whatever you do, you're still God. You still deserve praise and glory. And I'm going to lay here. I did, I will say this, I did hear myself ask the question, why me? And then all the times that I've said, why not you? came back to haunt me. <laughs> but why not? Why not? Silly little stupid little me decided to have high blood pressure and a stroke because I'm human and because eventually something gets everyone. But in the midst of something getting everyone, God remains sovereign. Lots of people have come and gone off this planet. Millions and millions of people have come and gone, and something got them. But God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm so glad that I knew that before this took place. 
I'm so glad that I had something to hang on to in the midst of all this because <coughs> it was hard. <laughs> it, was, it was ugly. And uh, man, I'm glad I knew it. Turn to Matthew 25. I know where we left off. A while ago, we left off at Matthew 25. I even got quizzed in the hospital. Micah came to see me and he said, do you remember where we were? And I said, yes, we're in Matthew 25. We're going to cover the first of Jesus' parables in Matthew 25 today. Let's start with some basic principles. In each of these three parables that make up what's called Matthew 25, in every one of them, Jesus tells us what the point is. However we interpret them, whatever conclusions we come to, we have to make sure we come to the same conclusion that Jesus did. And not everyone does that. I have heard people wildly interpret Matthew 25. I have heard people make up all sorts of things about Matthew 25. In fact, if you go read commentaries about Matthew 25, and I've read a lot of them because I have a lot of free time right now. I have read a lot of commentaries, and they usually say, oh, Matthew 25, what a difficult passage. I don't think it's difficult at all because Jesus tells us, what we should think about what he says in Matthew 25. And whatever else we say about it, we have to come to the same conclusion that he did. For instance, start in Matthew 24, verse 42. After Jesus has told the parable of the fig tree, after Jesus has talked about his glorious return, after all those things, he warns his audience which, remember, is a Jewish audience. It's not the church. Pentecost has not come yet. The church has not been conceived yet. And so he says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So Jesus has explained that he's coming back. The beginning of Matthew 24 is the disciples asking Jesus, what is going to be the sign of your return? How are we going to know when you're coming back? And he's told them, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But, then he gives them an example, verse 43, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. And then he goes on and talks about a faithful slave. Look at Matthew 25, verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Does that sound a lot like what he said in Matthew 24? Yes. It's identically the same because the subject hasn't changed. He's still talking about the fact that he's coming back. Now, midway through Matthew 25, his emphasis has turned a little bit. And he starts talking about the judgment that's going to accompany his return. 
But the first of the three parables in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, you've heard it all your life. If you've grown up in Sunday school, you know about the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, and people have wildly speculated on what that means. It means this. It means verse 13. Be on alert then, for you do not know the day or hour. Whatever else you say about this particular parable, it means be on the alert because you don't know the day or the hour. That's the primary focus that Jesus attaches to this story. Now, I've heard all kinds of wild speculation over the years, as I've mentioned, because this particular parable has a fair amount of detail in it. And people have concluded that the details are what's really important. And so they emphasize the details, or they say that this is a parable for the church, they, they just confuse the issue. And then they don't say what Jesus said in verse 13. But the point of this first parable is be on the alert because you don't know the day or the hour. Got it? Got it. Okay, that was all introduction. We are now at Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This book is the Oxford Companion to the Bible, one of many, many commentaries that I own. I'm going to read a little section out of it because Middle East marriage is very different than the modern concept of marriage. How they did things was different than how we do them. And you have to understand that what Jesus is saying in this parable is really common to everybody who's listening to him. When he talks about virgins waiting on the bridegroom, they all know what he's saying. They all understand it. It's very natural. Under the heading weddings, this particular Commentary says, given the importance of marriage and the rituals marking it, it must have been both splendid and complex. But since everyone in biblical times knew how weddings should be celebrated, biblical authors do not bother to describe them in detail, which is true. You can go all the way through the Bible and you would expect to find some kind of master plan, how a wedding is done, how you handle a wedding, how vows are made, how nowhere we read about the wedding in Cana of Galilee. We know that Jesus went to a wedding. The emphasis there is on they ran out of wine because the party went on for so long. The parties sometimes would go on for days celebrating a wedding. But the Bible doesn't tell us anything about how to do a wedding. So we are forced to build up a composite picture from the bits of information that are scattered throughout the Bible and to fill in the gaps and the basis of the customs that are attested to in parallel cultures. Now the particular thing I want you to get is this. Both bride and groom were bathed, then they were anointed, with oil and perfume, and they were dressed in special clothes, according to Psalm 49, 7 to 14. Jewelry and garlands were also worn. 
in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is compared to a marriage feast. We just saw Jesus do that. And it is possible that the white robes of the saints reflect the practice of wearing white at a wedding, according to Revelation 19.8. And throughout the ceremony, the bride was always veiled. The bride was accompanied by bridesmaids, according to Psalm 45.14. And the groom had his attendants, too. The chief of these were called the friends of the bridegroom. Know that phraseology? Jesus talks about it. He refers to those disciples that were with him throughout his ministry as the friends of the bridegroom. The bride was accompanied by her bridesmaid. The groom had attendance to the chief among these was the friend of the bridegroom who acted as a best man. The public ceremonies began with the groom and his companions processing to the bride's house. And after greeting her family and giving and receiving presents and some drinks, all of them returned to the groom's home in a lively processional dance accompanied by music and lanterns if night had already fallen. So the whole point of this is a bride typically stayed at her father's house. And while she was staying at the father's house waiting for the groom to come get her, She would be attended by maids, virgins, her bridesmaids. And they, if it was night, would all have lanterns because the groom could come anytime, 24 hours a day, and the bridesmaids and the bride had better be ready. And if they weren't ready, well, then pandemonium broke out because the groom is coming. Here he comes. He's right here. He's with his groomsman, he's with his friends, and he has come to get his bride. And then he will come get his bride and take her back to his father's house. Now, do I need to point out the parallels? Because Jesus likened the fact that he's coming back to a marriage supper and said he is coming back to get his church, who he also refers to as the bride of Christ. And he even said In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. The King James says many mansions. And then he says, if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm coming back to get you that where I am, you may also be. So he, like the groom, is coming to get himself a bride and then taking the bride back to his father's house. So where is he right now? He's preparing the place where his bride's going to be. Now, within first century Middle Eastern culture, Everybody knew that. And so when Jesus told this particular parable about foolish virgins and smart virgins, when he talked about the groomsmen coming to get them, they would all have known that these are the ways a marriage was typically done. We just don't do that anymore. Back to 25.1, and then we'll get to that book in a minute. Let me compare the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of those bridesmaids, five of the virgins, were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. 
Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they also got drowsy and began to fall asleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And look at the next phrase, and the door was shut. It's very final. The bridegroom came. There were some smart virgins who had their lamps and they had a flask of oil. So they were ready through the day and they were ready through the night. At any point when the groom came back, they'd be ready. Now remember, Jesus ultimately is not talking about marriage here. He's talking about the fact that he's coming back. And that you've got to be ready because no man knows the day and no man knows the hour. So he said the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. And then he told the story. And the story is all about the five foolish virgins who weren't ready. And so he says, be ready. Be on guard. Be constantly looking. Be prepared. Because you don't know what time he's coming back. This book is The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. He writes a bit about typical Mideast weddings, but he also talks about the lamps a bit. And because Jesus made the lamps one of the details of this particular story, I want you to understand the lamps. Another archaeological inquiry will perhaps be more helpful in our understanding of this parable, writes Alfred Eversheim. He said, the lamps, which are not torches, they didn't carry torches like they were seeking Frankenstein or something. <laughs> they, they actually had lamps. The lamps which the ten virgins carried were of well-known construction. They bear, in Talmudic writings, they bear the common name lapid, which is the aromatized form of the Greek word in the New Testament, which occurs as lampad or lampadis. The lamps consisted of a round receptacle for the pitch or the oil for the wick, and this was placed in a hollow cup of a deep saucer, which was fastened to the pointed end of a long wooden pole and then it was born aloft. Now picture this. What he's writing is these lamps had oil in the basin or pitch, which would light the wick. We read here they all got up and trimmed their lamps. And so they were dealing with getting the wicks ready. And the lamp itself was on the end of a long pole. So the lamp would be up high over them, throwing down light. We have the less reason to doubt that such was also the case in Palestine, since, according to rubric, 10 was the number required to be, oh wait, 
I missed something important. Let me go back. What do you want from me? I had a stroke. See, I'm going to yank that out as often as I can. I will play the stroke card at the drop of a hat. Okay. According to Jewish authorities, it was the custom in the East to carry in a bridal procession about 10 of these lamps that were held aloft on sticks. And so since there were typically about 10, Jesus went with 10. We have less reason to doubt that such was the case in Palestine since, according to rubric, 10 was the number required to be present at any office or ceremony, such as the benedictions that would accompany the marriage ceremonies. And in the particular circumstances supposed by this parable, the 10 virgins are represented as going forth to meet the bridegroom, each one bearing a lamp. So, these lamps and this number 10 was very specific to the culture of the time. When Jesus said there were 10 virgins, he didn't just make up 10 off the top of his head. There had to be 10 people attendant at a wedding ceremony. And so there were 10 virgins. And there had to be lamps that were held aloft over these people so that they could be seen so that the marriage ceremony could take place night or day. The first point which we mark is that the ten virgins brought presumably to the bridal house everyone their own lamp. An emphasis must be laid on this. Thus much was their personal preparation on the part of all. But while the five that were wise brought also, quote, oil in their vessels, presumably the hollow receptacles into which the lamps could be properly filled, the five foolish virgins neglected to do so, no doubt expecting that their lamps would be filled out of some common stock that would be in the house. In the text, the foolish virgins are mentioned before the wise because the parable turns on that very fact. They were foolish. They were unprepared. We cannot be at a loss to interpret the meaning of it. The bridegroom far away is Christ, who is come for the marriage feast from, quote, the far country, which is our home above. And certainly on that night, we know that he said he was coming that night, but we don't know what hour he was coming. So the ten appointed bridal companions who are to go forth to meet him are his professed believers or disciples, and they gather in the bridal house in readiness to welcome his arrival. Okay, now, I said all that to say this. The key to this whole parable is very simple. The key is five foolish virgins who went there thinking that they could get through the night. They fell asleep. And when they woke up, they found out they did not have enough oil in their lamp. And when they didn't have enough oil, they said to their friends, give us some oil. And their friends wisely said, no, go buy some. Go get your own. What Alfred Edersheim emphasizes is that every person there was responsible for their own oil. There was no shared effort. In other words, you can't be ready by my readiness. 
My preparation is my preparation. Your preparation is your preparation. In Jesus' time, when he was telling this particular parable, every individual he was talking to was responsible for being ready when he came back. We're back in Matthew 25. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. While they were going away to make their purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us, because the door had been shut. The marriage supper is proceeding. They were shut out. So they said, you're the captain here. You're the Lord. You're in charge. Open the door to us, and then we'll also come in. Notice his answer, which seems very cruel, but not to this particular church. It won't. We've heard this phrase before. But he answered and said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. What an interesting thing to say. Because this phrase, I do not know you, comes up frequently. For instance, it comes up in Matthew 7. You know that I often quote that Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father And that there are going to be some who are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not done great works in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And he's going to reply to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. you." Now, what that means is that it's not so important for you to say, oh, I know Jesus. And it's evident that I know Jesus by the things I do. My actions speak louder than my words, and my actions speak that I know Jesus. What's important is that he knows you. Because if he doesn't know you, you don't get in. And one more time, the only way to look at that, the only way to view that, is under the heading of sovereignty. Because if the Arminians were accurate, then that story would be everyone who comes and says, Lord, Lord, gets in. But he took the time to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, gets in. Now, in Matthew 7, I think the particular point of that story is if you can stand in front of the Lord of glory and brag about what you did, then you don't know him. Look at me. Look at everything I did for you. Look how I cast out demons. Look how I did these great works. Look how I prophesied in your name. Look, it's me, 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 me. I I think you're just being ignorant. Turn to Luke for just a second. Turn to the book of Luke. Because he uses this phrase in another place, which is even more interesting. Luke 13. This again is as he is talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he's telling parables and likening the kingdom of heaven to certain things that they would understand. Chapter 13, let's start at verse 22. As Jesus is teaching in the villages, 
Verse 22, and he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who were being saved? Isn't that a good question? Are there really only just a few? I've often said that the Sunday after the rapture, most churches will still be full. Okay, good. About three people appreciated that, but yeah. Well, the kind of teaching he was doing led them to ask this question. He was not walking around saying, anyone who wants to, according to your own will, you can come to me, and God is obligated by your choice. He taught a theology that was such that people would ask questions like this. Are there only a few? What are you saying? Why are you constantly dividing people? Why, are you, why aren't you unifying people? Why aren't you growing a big church? Why aren't you gathering people to yourself? Why aren't you throwing off the yoke of Rome? Why aren't you putting together a political movement and a religious movement? Why aren't you doing it the way we humans think it should be done? But Jesus walked around talking about exclusivity and choosing particular people. And so they ask him the question, Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter in by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. In other words, his answer is yes. Yes, there will be few. Look at the next verse. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Now understand what he's doing here. The Jews believe that just because they were descendants, natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were just automatically saved. They kept some portion of the law, didn't keep it perfectly, but they figured they were probably pretty good. And now the Jewish Messiah has come, and they could say, look, you walked in our streets, and you talked in our cities and villages, and you talked in Jerusalem, and, and we listened to you, and you ate and drank at our table. Doesn't that mean that you're our friend? We get in automatically? Isn't that what that means? And Jesus talked again about exclusivity and said, no, that's not what that means. He said, I don't know where you're from. They began to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, and he will say to them, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Okay, now they're bragging about what they did. Yes. They're talking about all the good they did. They're talking about what they've accomplished. They're talking about, we know you. You ate and drank. You walked in our streets. We know you. And Jesus ends up saying, I will say to them at that point, depart from me, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. I don't know who you are. The door is shut. So Jesus was not afraid to talk about judgment. 
Jesus had no qualm at all with telling the Jews of his day, you better come to me and I had better be your Lord and master and you better see nothing on this planet equal with me or I'm going to shut the door on you. And when I've shut the door, you're going to come and you're going to knock and you're going to say, but I know you. And I'm going to say, yeah, but I don't know you. Look at the next verse. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself being cast out. Now, the very fact that he said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob makes it clear that he's talking to Jews. He's talking to Israelites. And he said there's going to be weeping, gnashing of teeth. People are going to be very upset by this. And by the way, that's the same language that he uses for hell, to be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, to be put on the outside, to not be in the kingdom of God. And he says this to Jews who say, but we're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, right, and you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, all the people that I've chosen, you're going to see at the banquet. But you won't be in. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right there, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out. And they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some that are last will be first and some that are first would be last. I'm glad that he included the phrase, they will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. That's Jesus' way of saying, I'm going to go get people. I'm going to go get whoever I want. I'm going to go get Jews and Gentiles. I'm going to bring them all into the kingdom, even though you, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though you, the descendants of the prophets, are going to be on the outside, I'm going to bring in lots of people, whoever I choose to bring. So, Over and over again, Jesus used this phrase. Over and over again, he talked about exclusivity. Over and over again, he said, it's me, it's all me, it's all about me, it's only about me, and if you can stand in front of me and talk about you, I don't know you. In Matthew 7, he even says, you who are the workers of iniquity. They're bragging about, I did, I did, I did this, I did that. I prophesied in your name. I drove out devils. He says, that's works of iniquity. You're just a sinner doing sinful things. You need me. Okay, back again to Matthew 25. Verse 11. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, truly I say to you, I do not know you then what's the point of the whole parable? What's the point of the whole story? What's the point of the ten virgins? Oh, I have read so many commentaries that talk about the oil. Oh, they just go crazy about the oil. Oh, the five that didn't bring enough oil. Well, the oil is the Holy Spirit, and if they didn't have enough of the Holy Spirit to get them through the night, and the dark night fell, and just all these interpretations where they get into the details and they get lost in the weeds. Jesus tells us what the point of the parable is. The point is, be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. And he said that over and over again. 
I'm coming back. Yes, I'm coming back. I'm coming back in power. And you don't know when I'm coming back. Since you don't know when I'm coming back, be ready all the time. Be constantly ready for the return of Christ. Now, when Jesus said these things, he said them to a Jewish audience. But I think there's a lesson for us. Yes. Shouldn't we also be ready? Of course. Now, granted, we're looking forward to him coming back and gathering his church together and harpazo, rapture us away. But we're still looking forward to the return of Christ. We're still looking forward on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. We're still looking forward to him coming back. Because that's the only thing that's going to set this world right. You know, this morning when the men prayed in the back room, we always have three people that pray. And I heard two of the three people this morning say, this world is crazy and getting crazier. Mm -hmm. And that's right. This world is crazy. And this world is getting crazier. And I'm really glad to know that someone is actually in charge. Mm -hmm. And it ain't Donald Trump. (laughs) And it ain't Hillary. And it ain't Obama. And it it isn't Merkel. And it isn't... Who's in Russia now? Putin. Putin. None of the world leaders. The world leaders are just as crazy as everybody else. Nobody knows what's going on down here or else they'd have already solved all our problems. They've been at it a long time. If they knew how, they would have already solved our problems. There'd be no crime. There'd be no stealing. There'd be no sickness. There'd be nothing to worry about. There'd be no hunger. Everybody would be well fed. There'd be equity around the planet if they knew what to do. But the fact is, our leaders don't know what to do. Jesus knows what to do. And he's coming back to do it. And he's coming back to establish a kingdom wherein dwells righteousness. Wherein there will be joy. Wherein you won't have to teach every man his brother For every man his friend, they're all going to know the Lord from the greatest to the least of them. There's going to be a time when the kingdom is going to explode out here on earth, but that's going to happen when he comes back. And I so look forward to him coming back. I have a habit every night, I've been doing it for years and years, of saying my nighttime prayers and then closing with yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Whatever else I've prayed about, whatever else I've prayed for, I say that phrase. And every time lately that I've said, yours is the kingdom, I stop and think, man, I want that kingdom. Amen. <laughs> man, I want finally for there to be some peace on this earth. And they're going to say, peace, peace, and there's always going to be warfare, and there's always going to be fighting until the <coughs> Prince of Peace comes back. Yeah. Now, The next parable is about him coming back. But he comes back, he predicts his coming back in a way that the Jews don't expect. Oh, yes, kingdom. Oh, yes, you're going to throw off Rome. Oh, yes, we're finally going to be the chief nation on all the earth. Yes, David's greater son is going to come and rule over us. This is going to be great. And instead, he says, no, I'm coming back in judgment. And you don't know when I'm coming back in judgment. 
Okay, now again, this is not what the church is looking for. Again, the church is not anticipating Christ coming back in judgment. We're anticipating him coming back in salvation. He's coming back to get us. He's coming back like a groom who is coming for his bride and going to take his bride to his father's house. That's what we're anticipating. But when talking to this audience, this Israelite Jewish audience, about his coming back, the very first way he describes himself is as a judge. I talked to uh, my friend Greg Wren this week. And I said I won't be able to come to Texas this year for a multiplicity of reasons, not the least of which being I had a stroke. Every year for the last five or six years I've been going to Texas. But this year in Gladeville, I taught on the subject Jesus as judge. And then Greg Wren ran up to me and said, I love what you're teaching. When you come to Texas, I want you to teach judgment on the nations. I said, when did I become the judgment guy? (laughs) I was always the grace guy. The tie I'm wearing this morning that Tyler likes, grace, 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 amazing grace all over it. I don't have any ties that talk about judgment. And yet, people think that I'm going to teach about judgment. But the truth is that as I study the Bible and as I study the things that Jesus said about his own return to the planet, it's judgment, judgment, judgment. We who belong to Christ are going to be very happy to see the return of Christ. But the whole world, the world which when he said are there only few that are going to be saved and he answered them by saying wide is the door that leads to destruction many are going to go there narrow is the door that leads to salvation straight is the way narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life few there be that find it those are Jesus words when he comes back he's coming back to judge the world and the next two parables are about the fact He's coming back to judge. But I need more time to get to the next parable. So we will pick up at Matthew 14 next week. Wow, I went really easy on all of you this week. (laughs) Scary. But the parable of the talents, I've just read so many commentaries that talk about talents. You know, God gives you talents. If you're a good singer, he gave you that talent. If you're a good dancer, he gave it. It's not what it's talking about. Talents is a form of money. And he used money as an example to say, I give to everybody as much as I give everybody. And what they do with what I give them counts for something. And they even describe him as, you're a harsh man. I knew you were a tough judge. And I knew that you were going to come back at any time. And so I hid my talent. Look at verse 29. For to everyone who has been given, then he shall be given abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Boy, that's harsh. And he will be cast into outer darkness. Here we go again. 
and cast out the worthless slave into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, when I come back, I'm going to judge people and send people to hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He had no problem, no qualm, with constantly warning people, I'm coming back, but I'm coming back in judgment. Now again, that's not the message to the church. The message to the church in the Pauline corpus, is that he's coming back to get his church like a bride. But he's coming back to Israel and to the world as a judge. And so he warns everybody, I'm coming back and I'm coming as a judge. Therefore, since you don't know when it might be, you don't know the day or the hour, I could come back any time. He tells everybody everywhere, be ready. And of course, when he comes back, there will be plenty of people who go, Well, I didn't see that coming. But he warned everyone, be ready. Simple enough? Yes. I think I understand what you're saying, but there's a very subtle but very vital distinction. I think what you're saying is he's not talking about salvation. He's just talking about being ready for the return of Christ. If he's talking about salvation... This is a beautiful Armenian parable. <laughs> right. Everyone is prepared, must be uh, uh, responsible right. for his own oil. That's Armenian. How is it not? So it cannot mean salvation. It's just be ready for his return. Look at the very first verse of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. And then he tells the parable. So he's talking about the kingdom here. Among the Jews, among the Israelites, throughout the Old Testament, the promise of a kingdom to come, the promise of a throne, the promise of David's greater son, that's what they're expecting. And so now the Jewish Messiah has come. They're expecting him to set up the kingdom, throw off the yoke of Rome. That's why he even had a zealot in his group. But... As he's teaching this, the concept of the church, Arminianism versus Calvinism and all that stuff, hasn't ever occurred. He's talking to a Jewish audience about Jewish history, about Jewish prophecies, all of which they would know, and he's talking about Jewish marriage in the Middle East, which is why I read out of these books. None of that has to do with Gentile people. None of that has to do with the church. But it is easy if you read it as if it's the church, you're right. It's easy to make that a very Arminian passage. Because now every person is responsible for their own oil, and the oil becomes a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so it's up to you to have enough of the Holy Spirit when Jesus comes back. And now we're we're just in a mess. But only if we look at it in its historic context, only if we understand it as Jesus talking to a Jewish audience, Only then does it make sense. And I say again, as I've kept saying, I'm going to say it over and over again, whatever else we might say about this parable, Jesus told us what it means. He said it means you don't know the day or hour, so be ready. And that's all it means. Right? So you would agree then, and I'm just asking this for my own sake. Go right ahead. Go ahead. Just, I, Argue away. I haven't no, it's, done. It's I haven't done this in weeks. It's, so it's not go an at argument. it. I just want to make sure I understand. Sure. But Jim, it is New Testament. 
I mean, sure, yes. he's talking to three yes. Jews, his disciples, but you know, it's not it's not from Isaiah. Right. It, 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 it seems to me that which it is can be why justifiably confusing. But it, it, absolutely, people say, you know, if you're not ready, right? If you're not ready, you you're not living right. Yeah. And it's not a matter of election. You're not living right, so you're not getting in. Right. That's Armenian. Yes, it is. But since you said, but it's New Testament, let me ask you a couple questions. Um, when did the new covenant go into effect? We celebrated it last week. When did the new covenant go into effect according to Jesus? It went into effect at the cross. Yeah. Had he been to the cross yet? No. What covenant are they under? Old covenant. Old covenant. Well, Mosaic covenant. Law covenant. Right? So even though it's in the New Testament, this is why I take the time to always differentiate what covenant we're under at this point. Because it's really important. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, old covenant stuff. Up until he dies and resurrects. And the new covenant goes into effect. Everything that's written after that, Pentecost, everything forward, all the writing of Paul, new covenant. So even though you say, well, that's in the New Testament, I agree it's in the New Testament, but the New Testament includes information that's in the Old Covenant. And you have to make that differentiation. Right? Yeah. So I agree with you entirely. So it really is okay just to think of it as a parable about be ready because you don't know the hour. Well, that's what Jesus said it's about. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessary. That's all. And that's why I keep saying, and that's all it's about. Yeah. And not, not yeah. live in a certain way so that, you'll, so that you will uh, be sure to be saved. Let's put it this way. I would not use that passage to tell the church, be ready. Now, there's lots of stuff that's Pauline. There's lots of stuff that's later in the New Testament under the New Covenant, which tells the church, be ready. And so I would use those passages to tell the church, be ready, because Christ is coming back. But I wouldn't use that passage. Great. Thank you. That makes sense? Yes. Good. We got to the end of that. Yes? For the commentaries that have the oil being the Holy Spirit. Yes. How do they deal on verse 9 where the wise encourage them to go to dealers and buy themselves? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where do you go to buy more Holy Spirit? I mean, you're talking about free will. Yeah. Yeah. I actually heard one preacher say, well, that's about the church. You know, that's saying, go to church, get more of the Holy Spirit. You know, be looking for coupons. <laughs> Look for coupons. Absolutely. And again, again. This whole parable means one thing. Be ready, because you don't know when he's coming. Jesus said, that's what it means. That's what it means. What does he mean? Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. It, is that something in their culture already that he's referring to? He's making a specific point. They've asked him a question. Are there few that be saved? And he said, yeah. But do the work. Follow after God. Follow after the Son of God. Follow after me. Enter by the narrow door. But do people do that? Look, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness these days, telling people, repent, turn to God, believe in Christ, clean up your lives, follow hard after him. Are people listening? Yeah. 
No, you look around the room. I don't mean that the people around the room are not listening. <laughs> I mean, look around the room. It's a small gathering because the majority in the world isn't listening. You know, I was reading through commentaries, and uh, they said, as I mentioned an hour ago, they said almost to the person, gosh, this is a really hard chapter, Matthew 25. And I thought to myself, no, it's not. It's really easy. Turns out it's really hard. Why do you've, you've all got these questions about it. It, but it's only hard if we bring our traditions to it. It's only hard if we bring our church mindset, 20th century type mindset to it. It's really very easy if we look at the text. Jesus told a parable about the bridegroom coming, and the virgins weren't ready. And he said, and when I come back, there will be people who aren't ready. And that's really all it means. So if we get that firmly in our minds then we'll be ready for the next couple of parables. And he's not talking to us. And he's not talking to us. But see, as soon as you bring that up, there's going to be a question. <laughs> so, That's really important. Yes, sir. Okay. So it's probably not necessarily fair to view this as the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, right? Because that's church being... No, I would not view that as the marriage supper of the Lamb because he's just talking about a parable. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a reality that's coming. Here he's using it as an example in order to create a parable to tell people, be ready because I'm coming back. So I wouldn't draw that connection necessarily. No. What's going to happen first, the marriage or the marriage supper? First you get all the guests together and there's a big marriage ceremony of eating and celebrating and everything, and at the end of the marriage supper, then the marriage has happened. So I would say the marriage supper comes first. The rite, the ceremony? There's a whole betrothal. It is complicated. There's an entire betrothal that happens first, and the families get together, and they talk about what the dowry is going to be, and they talk about how much she's worth, which ought to make all the women in the room go, I'm worth it. And... (laughs) There, there's an entire negotiation that happens between the families first, and that can go on for months, hammering out the details. And then there's the actual marriage supper, and the marriage happens as a result of that. In fact, the marriage supper, the last thing that happens in the marriage supper is that the groomsmen, the friends of the groom, get together with the bride and groom and take them to a room where they consummate the marriage. And that's all part and parcel of the several-day celebration. And so... Considering that the society and the Bible considers them married when they've consummated, I would say that that's after the. All right. So, so actually, there's no real what we would call a rite or a ceremony. Right. Not the way we do it. Yep. I shudder to ask this, but are there any other questions? <laughs> I had no idea that that was going to elicit that kind of response, but. <laughs> no, 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 you're better off asking me questions because I, I type every day as practice, but typing is still a bit of a chore. These two fingers right here still just make up things that don't exist. These th- two fingers and my thumb, fine. They get along just fine. But these two like to make up stuff still. So ask your questions, don't email them to me. Is there anything else? Okay. 
Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.